This is the For Freedom Podcast. This podcast exists to bring to light the legalism and abuse in the independent fundamental Baptist movement and to encourage believers to grow in grace through the scriptures. Now, here's your host, John Hollyfield. Podcast. I am your host, John Hollyfield, bringing you the message of Galatians 5.1 to you. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And it is it is for freedom that God has brought us out of bondage, out of the bondage of sin, into freedom to Christ. And many of those uh, that we're, we talk about and address in this podcast try to enslave others with a yoke of legalism. And so that is what I try to do in the podcast and exposing that sort of legalism, uh, combating it with the truth of the scriptures, and then also helping those that have been abused in the IFB movement. Uh, the past few episodes have been doing a little series on the the false history of the Baptist succession theory, the trail of blood theory. This is the idea that the Baptist church is not a Protestant church, that the Baptist church has always existed down to the time of Christ. But this whole time, this whole time, there had been believers, there had been a line of believers outside of the Roman Catholic Church, outside of the Protestant line, that believed, that came forth, that had their heritage from the book of Acts, from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the apostles. As far as the Baptist is concerned, uh, we see that our lineage uh, coming from an apostolic lineage versus, um, say, uh, the Reformation or any of those things. Now, these individuals, these individuals went by different names, different groups went by different names at different times. Some of them were called Waldensians, some of them were called Paulicians, some of them were called Albigensians. They went by different names at different times, but these individuals were individuals that believed certain things. They had certain distinct belief systems that did not allow them to join up with the great whore, the Roman Catholic Church, and did not allow them to join up with the Protestant Reformation movement that basically just came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And so uh, began sort of the idea of, of this study by interviewing Dr. Matthew Lyon, a Baptist historian, and clarifying the Baptist distinctives. Now, that's important because of what we're going to cover today. The last episode I did uh, talked about sort of introducing what was the trail of blood theory, what was Baptist successionism, and that kind of thing there. So this brings us now to this point that uh, that I'm going to get into, and that is actually looking at the gro- groups that J.M. Carroll, and whether it's James Beller, whether it's any type of other... Uh, type of guy that, that ascribes to this theory, uh, the Rugmanites, that try to uh, use this trail of blood theory. They they group these different sects uh, through church history as, and, and claim them as Baptists. So 
That's what I'm going to cover today. I'm going to break these groups down one by one. We'll see how how far we get. Uh, I would like to be able to get through all of them, but uh, not exactly sure if I'm going to be able to cover all of it. So uh, in the groups that are listed, you have many different, you have uh, the Montanus Novations, uh, the Paulicians, and then that, that then you go up into more of the Middle Ages, and you got the Waldensians, the Albigensians, Henricians, Arnoldus, uh, and then uh, you've got the then it comes into the Anabaptist. Now, there's other groups, and we'll, we'll hit some of those other groups. But uh, those are the groups that are claimed as Baptist. And so they say that uh, Baptists are not Protestants. We did not, as a Baptist church, come off of the Protestant Reformation because we were always opposed to the Roman Catholic Church. And so there was always groups of Baptist people all the way in a unbroken line of succession that have always faced persecution. So let's look at that. The first group that is cited during this time is the group called the Montanists. The Montanists. James Beller said in his Collegiate Baptist History Workbook, Montanus was a convert of Christianity. Now, uh, most of everything, basically everything that I'm going to be giving to you today comes from the book Baptist Successionism, A Crucial Question in Baptist History by James McGoldrick. There will be a few things that I talk about that I got from another resource, but I'm just going to go ahead and be honest with you, lay that out right now. Uh, pick that book up. Listen, really read through that because he goes in a lot more detail than I'm going to and uh, devour that book if, you're, if this subject intrigues you, interests you, or anything like that. But... Uh, that way we got that out of the way and we don't have to stop moving on there. The movement derives its name from a guy named Montanus. It's his founder. He is the founder and self-proclaimed prophet of this movement. Montanus and his associates associates then sought to restore the earlier devotion by exercising the gift of prophecy much in the same manner as modern charismatics. Uh, the historian Eusebius reported that Montanist worship services featured intense emotionalism in which Montanus, the leader, quote, was carried away in spirit and wrought up into a certain kind of frenzy, raving and speaking strange things and proclaiming what was contrary to the institutions that had prevailed in the church as handed down from the earliest times, end quote. So Montanism, the, the Montanist group uh, was really a group that uh, exhibited uh, very, very ecstatic experiences that, as, as I just said, really don't resemble much of what Baptists look like. Maybe the, the Southern Camp Meeting Baptist, I guess the, the, the revivalistic Baptist, I don't know, maybe not. But uh, they're more along the lines of what we see these modern charismatic movements uh, do. And, um, and let me just go ahead and say this right now. I, I, I understand that some of the listeners, some of my listeners may not ascribe to this, but I'll just be honest with you. I am what uh, I would classify as a, I'm a card-carrying cessationist. Now, if you know what that term is, the difference between the term continuationist and cessationist, then you probably have already done research and maybe you are a cessationist because you know what it is. If those two, if those two terms totally are like foreign to you, let me just explain them 
to you. Now, um, a cessationist is someone who believes that the spiritual gifts that are recorded in the New Testament um, are given to the church and are given uh, are applicable to the day except for what we would call the sign gifts. The sign gifts being those of healings, miracles, and and those types of things, words of knowledge, and that stuff. Now, a charismatic believes that there's never been a cease in every spiritual gift. Now, I believe that the spiritual gifts are still available, and the Holy Spirit endows each believer at the time of conversion with a spiritual gift. Uh, however, I don't think that the sign gifts are for today. I believe that they are they have ceased, i.e. The, the term cessationist. Now, in that, I believe that nobody is getting revelation from God anymore. Okay? So when the canon of Scripture or the the written word of God ceased to be written down, I believe that God stopped revealing himself to man. Therefore, uh, no one is getting revelation from God. Meaning, when somebody says, God spoke to me, I, I sort of would say, uh, no, God has spoke to you. It's in the Bible. It's in the pages of the Bible. Now, some may say that's an extreme view. Uh, I do have reasons, biblical reasons, why I, I go to that. Um, one being that I believe that the revelation was given to the apostles, and when the apostles ceased to be around, when the last apostle uh, died, then therefore we don't have that anymore. Um, so uh, I think this is something that is, is greatly abused in, in the church world today. It's abused in every church culture. Uh, I believe that it's also abused in the IFB, and, and that is this idea of God told me or God spoke to me. And when you don't hold to a view of that God is, is not speaking to mankind anymore and that uh, the Word of God is sufficient for us, we don't need private revelations from God, when you don't hold to that, it opens the door for all kinds of chaos and abuse within the world of Christianity. And people make Christianity and the church and God look so stupid in the world with these ideas of God spoke to me. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll even say this. Most cults that you, you find today is, whenever, is because those people who began those cults deviated. They left the word of God for the God spoke to me things. David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Uh, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and uh, many of those are are there because they began giving getting private revelations from God. I always tell people that whenever you're listening to a preacher, even if it's in a Baptist church, when you're listening to a preacher and they make this statement, let me show you what God gave me this morning. Red flags should go up. Red flags should go up because there's nothing that that pastor has to give to you that you don't have in your lap that you could get yourself, okay? There is nothing that, that, that sort of puts him on a higher plane of spirituality, and that, I believe, is, is, is heretical. I don't think that it exists, and I think that you need to be very careful, and that's where a lot of spiritual abuse comes whenever people start telling that they should do this because God told them they should do this. Stay away from that. Now, that was a major rabbit trail, 
And if you disagree with me that, with, on that, I, okay, I get it. I know that there's arguments that can come up. Well, what if the Holy Spirit does this? Listen, and we could we could argue that today as long. And I and I know I didn't take the time to make my case on why I believe that. Maybe I'll do that in another episode. But uh, that is where I stand on that. So when I see this type of this type of stuff, I say this is very problematic for understanding historic Christianity. Montanism appears to have been much more akin to Pentecostalism than to any historic expression of the Baptist faith. Remember what we talked about with the Baptist distinctives. McGoldrick says, contrary to the claims of Baptist successionist authors, no apparent foundation exists for regarding the Montanists as Baptistic preservers of the true church. The arch distinctive of Montanism was the doctrine of extra-biblical special revelation, a concept which Baptists and their confessions of faith have disavowed in favor of the exclusive authority of the Bible as the sole means of knowing the Word of God. So, did God write the Bible? Yes. And, and you know what? Here's another interesting thing. Going back, sorry, going back to that idea of God told me, you mark her down most of the time when somebody says that they got a word from God, it does not agree with what is revealed already in Scripture anyways. Just a, just a little tidbit for you there. So that is the Montanist. Do they sound like Baptists to you? I would give an X. No, I don't believe Montanists are Baptists. Now, therefore, number one, one big thing happens. The first thing that big thing that happens is this that your line of unbroken succession to the time of Christ or the early church for Baptist is over with. It's broken. It's done. But number two, it, it and this is what we're going to continue to see as we examine this, is that it shows the, the really, really bad research in history, historical research and just handling history that has been done by those that claim this. You're not looking at these people. You're not being, and if you are looking at these people, you're not being honest about who they are so you can use them for your agenda. Okay? Uh, so that's the Montanist. The next on our list is the Novationist. The Novationist. Novation became the first bishop or pastor at the new Novations Church and Novationist Church in, at Rome. These collectively became known as Novationists, and their independent churches existed well into the 5th century. This is from a Baptist succession author, James Beller. This is what he said about them. All right, so let's look at what Novationists were. The Novations are the second major body of dissidents which successionists have claimed as Baptists, like Tertullian, uh, Tertullian was an early church father who actually sort of uh, reneged and left a little bit of his faith and went uh, sort of towards the left towards the end of his life. Uh, Novation, uh, around the year 258, was an able scholar whose major contribution to theology was an exposition of the doctrine of the Trinity. Novation became a prominent leader in the Catholic Church at a time, around 250, when Roman Emperor Decius was savagely persecuting Christians. Now, check this out. In the Episcopal election of the year 251, Cornelius, 
a relatively undistinguished cleric was chosen bishop in a hotly contested procedure. A minority of electors refused to acknowledge him and chose Novation instead. The church as a whole was divided by the rivalry. There was no theological dispute between the rivals and their respective supporters. The quarrel was about disciplinary policy and strength of two determined personalities that made reconciliation impossible. See, the whole idea was about this, and, and Matthew Lyon talks about it on his episode in the Trail of Blood uh, on the History and Hope podcast, that these guys were uh, fighting over whether they should let these people who uh, reneged on their faith during the midst of persecution back in the church. Novation didn't think that they should, uh, I think, and then so they you had these two guys going up for the Episcopal bishop of the church and Basically, what happened was they went with Cornelius, got the majority of the vote, and not Novation. So Novation said, "I'm picking up my toys and I'm going home." <laughs> so to put it to put it uh, in, in a crude manner, what he ended up that they took he took a group along with him and said, "Nah, I'm not having this. I want to be the leader." And he left. It was not over any doctrinal reason. It was not over baptism. It was not over anything that makes them specifically Baptist for the reason that they broke off. He didn't like the fact that he didn't get elected. So he's going to start his own his own church. Eusebius, historian Eusebius, reported that a, a synod of 60 bishops plus many other churchmen excommunicated Novation and that soon many of his followers abandoned him and adhered to Cornelius. And so that is the thing with Novation. Uh, was upset that he did not get to become the Pope or the main bishop. On what basis successionist McGoldrick says have inducted the Novations into the line of Baptist churches? The answer seems to be that successionists have been willing and too often eager to accept the claims of religious bodies that opposed Rome and suffered for doing so. The, this, is, this is an interesting thing that he said. What you're going to find when it comes to these groups is that they, they look so different from what an actual Baptist is that you're probably wondering why in the world that they use these groups. What could constitute? And it really came down to either one or two things. Number one, they either were not part of the Roman church. It didn't matter what they believed or practiced, as long as they weren't part of the Roman Catholic church, hey, they're Baptist. Or that they baptized people. Those two things tend to be the only criteria that caused these groups to be lumped in as being part of the Baptist denomination of successionism or trail of blood. Uh, now, moving to the next group. The next group we come to is this group called uh, the Paulicians. Now, the Paulicians take up probably um, the longest period of time as a group that existed within the, the groups named in the, in the succession line or the trail of blood. James Beller said the Paulicians were courageous Bible believers of the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries. Okay, so the Paulicians were courageous Bible believers. Well, let's examine that claim. Uh, when we find um, 
a group in any age who are spoken against by the multitudes, we may rest assured they were contending for the tenets held by the Baptists and suffering under the stigma imposed by enemies of the truth. This was by another Baptist successionist history, J.M. Holliday. The precise origins of the movement have been ascertained, and there is disagreement about the source of its name. Some hold that the name is derived from a guy named Paul of Samosata, patriarch of Antioch from the time of 260 to 268, who was deposed from the episcopate for maintaining unorthodox beliefs about the Trinity and the person of Christ. There is, however, no proof that the Paulicians owed their origin to this Paul of Samosota. Now, uh, we, for, for a long time, historians uh, really didn't know a lot of what the Paulicians really taught and believed. However, in 1828, and we do now, thanks to an archaeological find in 1828, this uh, document was called the Key of Truth. It is a major statement of Paulician doctrine, uh, which was compiled by the leaders of the sect. It was found in a Russian-Armenian colony in 1828. Uh, McGoldrick says, Because of this great discovery, scholars are now in a position to appraise the theological character of of Paulicianism by means of an unimpeachable and unprejudiced source. Okay, so when we look at the key of truth and the Paulicians are permitted to speak for themselves, listen, it becomes crystal clear that they were not Baptists. In fact, when judged by a traditional creed or standard of orthodoxy, they cannot be regarded as Christians at all. This is the Paulicians. Now, what did... What did Beller say? What did Beller say? Beller said um, they were courageous Bible believers of the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries. Okay, so let's look at this. The Paulician doctrine of God expressed in the key of truth is is an anti-Trinitarian view. The Paulicians believe that Christ became the Son of God when he was adopted by the Father at his baptism. That doesn't sound very Baptist to me. They maintained a heretical position on the work of Christ as well. The Paulicians viewed Christ as primarily a teacher, and they gave priority to ethics over doctrine. What does that mean? That basically means a work-based salvation. What you are going to find in this group is that they have more lining up with the Mormons than they do the Christians, or Baptists for that matter. Most of these groups look more like a cult than they do a Baptist denomination. Excuse me. Christ's death, they denied that it was uh they denied that it was an atonement for sin. And they viewed the Holy Spirit as a creature. The key states the key of truth states this quote Blessed art thou Spirit of the Heavenly Father, for as much as thou wast made by the Father. So the Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity, of the Holy Spirit, is not that he was made. No, that he is God, and he has always existed as God. He is not the Son of God, and he is not the Father, God the Father. He is the Holy Spirit, but he is exists in essence and in personhood as the one true God, the one triune God. 
That is what Orthodox Christianity teaches. Okay, so initiates coming into the Paulician church were baptized nude. That'd be interesting to see, to to have uh, go to your local Baptist church and say, hey, you guys aren't baptizing, right? Because they got clothes on. See how well that goes over. And the mode of administration featured both immersion and pouring. The third pouring of water over the head was believed to convey the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they believed that you received the Holy Spirit by the third pouring of your baptism. And so they didn't even practice uh, exclusively baptism by immersion. This would cause them to be rejected by any independent fundamental Baptist church today as probably heretical. In fact, old Tony Hudson wouldn't rub shoulders, who rubbed shoulders, who rubbed shoulders with anybody that did that. Guarantee it. Okay, there is evidence that the Paulicians continued the Catholic practice of praying for the dead. The dispute between the Paulicians and the Orthodox Church was not a controversy between Baptists and Catholics, but a quarrel between two groups which claimed to be the Catholic Church. The Paulicians weren't trying to separate themselves as another group. They were trying to say they were the Catholic Church. Then the Paulicians sent missionaries to different areas. One of the places that they went to was the Balkan Peninsula. Uh, During this time when Paulician troops were in the employ of the imperial government of Constantinople. All right, so they also got involved in military conquest and became sort of soldiers. This gave rise to what is known as the Bogomil movement. Now, the Bogomils are another group that you will find in the Baptist line of succession, successionism and the Trail of Blood. McGoldrick goes on to say, Some writers of this school have ignored the Bogomils completely, while others have regarded them as Paulicians under another name. Rigorous asceticism, which featured the avoidance of eating meat and participating in sexual relations, was promoted as a means to combat evil inclinations of the body. So the Bogomils, disdain for material things, led them to interpret Scripture in such a manner as to explain away the miracles of Christ. That doesn't really sound very independent fundamental Baptist. They rejected the Old Testament law and prophets, While in the New Testament, they gave priority to the Gospels and Acts at the expense of the Epistles. Hmm. The single item of such correspondence appears to in the Bogomil's rejection of infant baptism. Their reason for rejecting that practice, however, in no way resembles the Baptist position on the subject. Bogomils denied all water baptism because it applied the application of the material element and in their understanding, all things material are evil. So there you go. Uh, they didn't just reject infant baptism. They rejected baptism by water altogether. The Bogomils did. This branch off the Paulicians. The New Testament in 1 John 4, 1-3 asserts that the position which a teacher maintains concerning the person of Jesus Christ is the criterion by which his profession of the faith is to be evaluated On this basis, it is patently clear that the Bogomils must be regarded as exponents of an anti-Christian religion. Why? Because they denied the Incarnation and all that it implies. The Bogomils from 
Constantinople believed that Christ was the archangel Michael who entered the world through the ear of the Virgin Mary and assumed a phantom non-material body. See what I mean when I said they have more in common with maybe the Mormons than Baptists? The Bogomils ended up fleeing to Bosnia, and in that country they became known as the Petarines, which you find as another group within the Trail of Blood Theory and the Baptist Succession line, the Petarines. Now, McGoldrick says, contrary to the claims of some successionists, the Bogomils, the Bogomils were not Bulgarian Baptists. They were advocates of a dualist religion which scarcely re resembles real Christianity. Now, at this point, when you're tracking down the line, the 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 ages of history, okay, we're somewhere. The Paulicians branched all the way up to about the uh, 1100s. Okay, so then you get into finding groups thrown in the trail of blood that really were branches off of one single guy following. But again, they're included into uh, the Baptist line. So uh, we're, I'm going to cover these three groups. You got the Petrobrusians who followed a guy named Peter de Bruyne. You have the Henricians, which followed a guy named Henry of Lausanne. However, you say that. And then you have the Arnoldists who followed a guy named Arnold of Brescia. And this was all sort of around the same period of time. So the Petrobrusians, the Petrobrusians. <laughs> Were uh, by were started by a guy named Peter de Bruyne, and around 1135, who is a priest from the French Alps. Okay, McGoldrick says there is no basis at all for referring to Peter as a Baptist minister in the 12th century, and so little is known about the character of his movement that efforts to depict the Petrobrusians as reflect only wishful thinking. So, what is the verdict here? It means this that here you have a group of people that followed this guy in a religious manner, and we don't know nearly anything about them, so it was it's very presumptuous for us to then pull them out and claim them as Baptists. However, it doesn't matter if they were or not. Let's say, let's just say, the Petrobrugians were identical to the independent fundamental Baptists of today. Your trail of blood or line of Baptist succession has already been obliterated. So you got one group. But see, honest, his integ honest integrity in historical research says that you, can include, you cannot include the Petrobrugians as Baptists because we don't know enough to determine if they were or not. Plus, we know one thing for certain. They didn't call themselves Baptists. Okay. So next are the Henricians. Henry of Lausanne in around 1145 arrived in Provence soon after the death of Peter de Bruyne. He had once been a Benedictine monk. The paucity of evidence, says McGoldrick, about Henry of Lausanne and the Henricians precludes a declarative judgment about their alleged Baptistic teachings, but those documents which are extant give little support of successionist claims. So, sort of the same verdict, but what we have basically says, eh, that doesn't match up. 
All right, so let's move on to the next group, the Arnoldists. The Arnoldists. And this was a group that that followed a guy by the name of Arnold of Brescia from 1155. You like that? Brescia. Okay. I don't know if that's right or not. Anyways. Okay. His career was mainly that of a critic of clerical corruption and abuses. So if a guy stands up and says that the Roman Catholic priests are corrupt, yeah, he's our Baptist guy. Whatever. Arnold was a fervent moral reformer who shared many of Bernard of Clairvaux's concerns for the cleansing of the church, and at the beginning of his career, he was a loyal, are you listening? Catholic and servant of the Roman church. Eesh. That sort of messes up your theory. Arnold was ordained a priest and joined the Augustinian monastery in Brescia. Arnold had to leave Brescia for France. He visited a guy named Abelard. In France, he defended Abelard when his former teacher was attacked by Bernard of Clairvaux. And Bernard responded by convincing Louis Louis VII to expel Arnold from the kingdom. Arnold went to submit to the new pope, Eugene III, who ordered Arnold to Rome where he could be watched. So here's this guy who's, who's got on the outs with the, with the bishops. And one of the most uh, renowned bishops was a guy that had one of the most influence, Bernard of Clairvaux, who wrote some very good work, the, theological works, uh, I, I must say. You should do your research on Bernard of Clairvaux. He, he did some very uh, advanced some very good thoughts on the area of doctrine, orthodox doctrine in the church. But Arnold finds himself on the outs with Bernard and many of these other bishops, and so they want him out. Does this guy do the Baptist thing and stand up for what he believes in? Actually, no. What he does is he goes and appeals to the Pope and wants to convince the Pope of his loyalty to Rome. Arnold, like uh, Savonarola in the 15th century, was a Puritan reformer of great courage. But his stern and rigorous moral demands eventually alienated many supporters. By 1155, his power base had crumbled and Pope Hadrian was able to gain control of Rome. Arnold was arrested and and killed, apparently by hanging. McGoldrick says Arnold's understanding of salvation appears to have been one that emphasized works righteousness rather than justification through faith alone. McGoldrick finishes those three groups by saying the full teaching of the Petrobrugians, the Henrichians, and the Arnoldists will probably never be known. But on the basis of surviving evidence, there is no justification for regarding these sects as medieval Baptists. Now, let's move on to the next group. We're getting further on down the line in history. Move on to the next group. I want you to hear this clip uh, by uh, this guy's name is Cody Zorn, uh, evangelist in the South and the IFB. And here he talks about these next two groups, Albigensians, Waldensians. Them people up there was Waldensians. They, these people here, these Waldensians and Albigensians, and they got other names. They got Anabaptists and Hussites and people like that that were named after men. Y'all listen to me. We are not Protestants tonight. This right here is, what you're looking at ain't just a study of a King James Bible. What you're looking at is a study of Baptist history too. 
We have never been Protestants. We never come out of the Roman Catholic whore. You say, where do you find that? Revelation 17, she's called a whore. We never come out of it. Brother, we're not Protestants. We're Baptists tonight. What we believe, we believe a long time before the first dress-wearing pope with a grapefruit on his head ever showed up and started saying, you know, my head hurt, my belly hurt from a cigarette sack. Long time before he ever showed up. This line of manuscripts right here goes up through Christians, Waldensians, Albigensians. They kept translating this thing. Not only is it purified seven times through seven English texts, if you'll study the text of the Antioch Syrian text, it comes through seven different languages. So, the Albigensians. Let's look at these guys. The name Albigenses is derived from the town of Alba in southern France. The Albigenses and Waldenses were completely separate sects with, with beliefs so diverse than one, that one could not have originated as an offshoot of the other. Since the Albigenses regarded our material as evil per se, they refused to believe that a good God could become man. So they were dualists. What this meant was, and this was like a second century heresy as well, and what it meant was is that the material was evil and the spiritual was good. Actually, it goes further back. It's 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 really not biblical or Christian uh, or have any ties to Christian. It's more to Christianity. It's more uh, tied to um, uh, I believe it's. Uh, Aristotle, Aristotelian or Platonic theory, Plato, uh, that the, the they need to attain to the spiritual or Gnostic uh, secret knowledge and what is material can only corrupt. And so that's what these this group jumped onto. Because the person and work of Christ constitute the heart of Christianity, the teaching of any sect on Christology is the test by which it claims its claims must be measured. Applying this test to the Albigensians and other Cathars revealed that they should not be regarded as Christians at all. So, McGoldrick says a careful study of the Albigenses and the Cathars based on primary documents shows beyond reasonable doubt that they held almost nothing in common with modern Baptists. So, let's look at the Waldensians, okay? Who are the Waldensians? And uh, David Schock wrote a little book called A Glimpse of Faith, The History of Independent Baptist. I picked it up and researched looking for anything on the history of Independent Baptist, and I found it, so I bought it and read it, and I don't recommend reading it. You can check it out if you want. David Schock, A Glimpse of Faith, The History of Independent Baptist. He said this, The beliefs of the ancient Waldensians were just like Baptists and that they took all their beliefs directly from the Word of God like all Christians should. Okay? Well, let's look at this. Let's examine the Waldenses, okay? Uh, the same period of medieval history saw the rise and suppression of the Cathars uh, witnessed the emergence of a very different religious movement known as the Waldenses. In contrast to the Cathars, whose dualistic world and life view placed them in radical opposition to historic Christianity, the Waldenses began as a reform movement within the Roman Catholic Church and never imbibed Manichaean teachings. The sect owed its origins to Peter Waldo around the age uh, around the year 1216, known in France as the Valdes, said McGoldrick. 
The evidence is conclusive. Waldo was the founder. Some try to say that the Waldensians existed before Waldo. And traditions of an early origin stretching back even to the days of apostles are fables. Waldo's confession. So they Waldo actually put together a confession of faith. He said this, We believe one church, Catholic, holy, apostolic, and immaculate, apart from which no one can be saved. And in the sacraments therein administered through the invisible and incomprehensible power of the Holy Spirit, sacraments which may be rightly administered by a sinful priest. I wonder, how many independent Baptists would put that on in their doctrinal statement? We believe... Again, going on with Peter Waldo's confession, we believe that anyone in this age who keeps a, to a proper life, giving alms and doing other good works from his own possessions and observing the precepts from the Lord can be saved. Huh? So there he is attaining works salvation. Despite differences between the two wings of the Waldenses, it is clear that both the French and Italians believed in transubstantiation and human priesthood to consecrate the bread and wine. So, McGoldrick finishes up the Waldensians by saying this, although successionists have hailed them as Baptists, medieval Waldenses were quite similar to the Catholic Franciscans, those of the Reformation were akin to Presbyterians, and those of today have become Methodists. So, the last group, the last group that I want to look at and, uh, and, and examine here is not just a group that independent fundamental Baptists or those that ascribe to the Trail of Blood theory try to claim that the Baptist denomination come from. Many others really have, have just accepted that this group was where the Baptist denomination came from. And so, I'm going to attempt to show you that that is not the case. And that last group, this may throw you for a loop, is the Anabaptist. Now, if you've ever heard of the Anabaptist, it probably would think, well, yeah, the, the Baptist came from the Anabaptist. And that's what they try to teach. The truth of the matter is, is that no, the Anabaptist, the Baptist denomination that exists today, that that started in England in the 1600s, did not branch from the Anabaptist. Okay, so let's look at this. McGoldrick says it's patently clear that secessionists regard the Anabaptists of the 16th century as the immediate forefathers of modern Baptists. Um, the Anabaptists, David Schock said in his little history book, The History of Independent Baptists, the Anabaptists themselves preferred the simple title, Baptists. These German Anabaptist churches were independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist churches. Okay. Paul Chappell said about this, that the Anabaptists are part of the group, um, are, are part of the Baptist denomination. Okay. Uh, said this in his book, um, The Road Ahead, Ten Steps to Authentic Ministry for Independent Baptists on a Chapter on Heritage, uh, lumps the Anabaptists in with, with, with uh, where modern Baptists stem from and said this, and so it was that the name Baptist was popularized through the very people who wished to end our doctrine. Leon Macbeth, in his Baptist history book, 
starts begins to help us set this straight by saying Anabaptists ranged all the way from extreme mystics, much like Quakers, to extreme rationalists. The term Anabaptist is derived from a Greek word that signifies rebaptizes. It appeared in the 4th century as a label of scorn to denounce dissidents who denied the validity of baptism administered by clergymen of the Catholic Church. Okay? So, Anabaptists. Who are the Anabaptists? The Anabaptists of the Reformation era. So, you had the Protestant Reformation in 1517 and 1500s. You have Martin Luther who broke off the Catholic Church. Um, it was a process, but it you know it began October thirty first nineteen or fifteen seventeen, the nailing of the ninety five theses, uh, and then a few years after that, Luther realized this was not going to be something where he could reform the Catholic Church, and then the the Reformation was completely underway. At the same time, across the mountains in Switzerland, you have a guy named Ulrich Zwingli who is doing a similar thing. So you got these guys coming up, and then they have their followers after them. You have guys like Philip Melanchthon after Luther uh, in Germany. You have those that actually traveled to Germany to learn under Luther. One of those guys was uh, from England, William Tyndale. Uh, and then you have also uh, you have guys in, in Switzerland that are carrying on the torch after, after, uh, after Zwingli. Uh, guys like uh, Heinrich Bollinger, uh, John Calvin, and and uh, I'm I'm missing one in Switzerland. But then also the Reformation uh, gets going in England in the 1500s uh, through uh, the work of William Tyndale, who was who was killed. Then guys like Thomas uh, Cranmer and um, and uh, preachers that were uh, martyred by uh, Mary during the uh, the the called Bloody Mary, the Marian Martyrs. Uh, I'm going blank right now. I don't have it in front of me. Um, uh, the Five English Martyrs is a great book by J.C. Ryan. You should check out the talks about that. But uh, I just uh, forgive me. I'm going blank on their names. And you also have a Scottish reformer that went and learned under Calvin, whose name was John Knox. Okay, So this is what's going on in the Reformation. Now, in the Switzerland era, area, um, Going on over there, where Zwingli is, you have a, a radical group that sort of is is working there, and that is um, they get their name as the Anabaptists. Okay, um, it is important to note uh, the Anabaptists did not constitute a united religious body, though, with an agreed confession of faith. So much diversity existed among them that it it is difficult to generalize. About them with any degree of confidence. I've heard James White talk about this all the time. It's hard to really determine what the Anabaptists believed uh, for a few reasons. Number one, they didn't really see, were concerned, or took time to, uh, to write out confessions or be concerned with deep theological ideas or, uh, or write down theological ideas on where they differed with the Roman Catholic Church. Another reason is because they were very severely persecuted. And so because of that severe persecution by Catholics and Protestants alike, they ended up being killed. Um, so the, the, you know an Anabaptist preacher really didn't live a long time enough to maybe even write a, a document about where they believed. But the, the, the fact of the matter remains that those that carried the name Anabaptist in different regions or different areas actually ended up believing very starkly different from each other. 
So it was hard to say the Anabaptists believed this. Most Anabaptists were Trinitarians, but some were Unitarians. Most were pacifists, but some were extreme militants. The distinctive doctrines and practices that were held most widely among Anabaptists were rejection of infant baptism in favor of adult believers' baptism, insistence upon the concept of a free church independent from the patronage and control of the state, and denial of both the Roman, Catholic, and Protestant teachings about salvation in the Christian life. Anabaptism arose in the 16th century in Zurich, Switzerland in 1525. Those involved in this endeavor were led by men who had earlier supported the work of Ulrich Zwingli, father of the Protestant Reformed Church in Zurich. Now, here's the the point that I think needs to be made. Uh, Matthew Lyon made this point in his episode on the Trail of Blood and the History and Hope podcast, but I think it's important to, to, to state. If the Anabaptists began out of Switzerland, and they did, from the teachings of Zwingli and Zwingli's followers, which they did, and many of these guys that uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer and and um, uh, Menno Simons and these other guys that became the first Anabaptist preachers and leaders, which they were, they were actually former Catholic priests, so that doesn't make them part of an unbroken line of Baptist succession. It makes them Protestant. Hmm. When Anabaptist and Baptist beliefs on the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith are compared, it becomes evident that the former, theologically speaking, could not have been the forefathers of the latter. Winthrop Hudson, in his 1953 article, summarized his views on the Anabaptist uh, and Baptist uh, differences in five points. Number one, first, early Baptists themselves repeatedly denied they were Anabaptist, regarding the term as a name of reproach unjustly cast upon them. Okay. Number two, second, Baptists firmly rejected the distinctive features of Anabaptist life, such as opposition to civil magistracy, holding public office, military service, oaths, going to court, soul sleep, Hoffmanite Christology, and Anabaptist confidence in the essential goodness of man and their consequent rejection of original sin. So what Hudson is saying is that the Baptists of the 1600s, the Separatist Baptists, where the Baptist denomination really began, of the 1600s, were very, very quick when they started to be open and honest and, and wrote and spoke about the fact that they in no way were connected to the Anabaptists. Third, practically all of the early Baptist leaders, general and particular, had been separatists before they adopted Baptist views. Fourth, Baptist views represent the logical conclusions of separatism, and Anabaptist influence is not necessary as a hypothesis to account for the adoption of believers' baptism by the Baptists. And fifth, when John Smith moved toward the Anabaptists, he was repudiated by the Baptist remnant that soon returned to England under the influence of Thomas Helwes and Merton. And any Anabaptist influence upon Smith did not carry over the Baptist. And this is That was taken from Leon Macbeth's history book, Baptist Heritage. In 1550, an Anabaptist synod was held at Venice 
with about 60 delegates, and they summarized 10 points to clarify their teaching. Now listen to these. These are the 10 points that they clarified at this Anabaptist Synod. Number one, Christ is not God, but the son of Joseph and Mary, one filled with divine powers. So right off the bat, they deny the deity of Christ. Number two, Mary bore additional children after Jesus. Okay. Number three, angels are merely men commissioned by God for special tasks. So they didn't believe in angels. Uh, or maybe they did believe in angels, but they were just men. Or maybe the men were the angels. I don't know. Number four, there is no personal devil. Hmm. Number five, the final resurrection will not include the unrighteous. They will remain in the grave forever. Uh, number six, the grave is the only hell. Number seven, the righteous sleep until the last resurrection. Number eight, evil souls die with their bodies. No eternal torment, I guess. Number nine, the human seed produces both the body and the soul. Number ten, the elect are justified by the mercy and love of God. The death of Christ was not an atonement, but a demonstration of divine love. And if you, uh, there's, I got more material. I'm gonna, I'm gonna close it from there. If, if you don't have, if you can't see that these people were not Baptist, their confession does not line up with the Baptist that we did not come from the Anabaptists. Therefore, McGoldrick closes down the Anabaptists with this. On the vital questions of revelation, Christology, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, Anabaptists and Baptists were not agreed. The Anabaptists of the 16th century were the forefathers of the many brethren groups of today, of which the Mennonites are the largest and most influential body. So that is where we will stop with the Baptist line of succession. Where did the Baptist denomination start? It was a separatist movement in England in the early 1600s. And it started with the General Baptist Church, and then about 20, 30 years later, there was a particular Baptist Church that started. The two divisions of the General and Particular Baptist Church really differed on the idea of Calvinism. And so the Particular Baptist Church believed in the particular election of believers the General Baptist Church were free will holding. These were the first Baptist churches. That's where the Baptist denomination started. And yes, Baptists are Protestant. Okay? And like I said at the beginning, this either shows a major ignorance of history, a lack of research, or at worst dishonesty and a lack of integrity in the research to try to further an agenda that we are the only true church or the Baptist church is the only true church. That is not the case. I love church history. And um, and so uh, that'll probably be the last. Uh, I know that I've done the history of the IFB movement. I've done this thing that has is heavy on history. Uh, when I cover certain topics, I'll try to give sort of a historical background of it. But uh, moving forward on from here, uh, we'll get into more legalism and topics like that. Uh, I want to spend some time covering the King James onlyism and those types of things. But I have some ideas for some upcoming episodes, uh, so look forward to that. 
And uh, I hope this helped you. If you have any questions, uh, reach out. If I don't have the answer, I'll try to look it up or find somebody that knows the answer. Um, and uh, I hope this was, was helpful to you, these few episodes on the debunking the Baptist successionism or trail of blood theory of Baptist history. Um, just another aspect of uh, errant or aberrant IFB teaching. Okay, and so we're, my intentions are to get into more of that as we continue. Appreciate guys listening. I appreciate all the feedback that I've been getting. You guys are awesome. Uh, the The podcast has really uh, been growing here lately. Uh, if you uh, have been, I, I, let me say this. I, I appreciate if you reach out and just say, hey, been listening, it's been helpful. That means a lot. It does mean a lot because you almost wonder sometimes, are the statistics I'm looking at on these apps, are they accurate? What do they mean? So if you reach out, I, listen, that, that does, it's very encouraging. It really is. And uh, if there's something um, that uh, you'd like for me to look into or cover on uh, as far as a, th- a theological basis or something, uh, I have a lot of things that I are in uh, my queue that I want to uh, get to, uh, but if there's something that you'd like me to address, maybe I'll just reply back and say, yep, I'm going to get to that, or maybe I haven't thought about it. And uh, one one person reached out to me, Jose, uh, I'm going to give you a shout out there, Jose Nieves, and uh, uh, talked about, I'm going to uh, do an episode somewhere down the road on how the independent Fundamental Baptist attacked uh, John MacArthur on the subject of the blood of Christ. Uh, now it's going to be down the ways because I have a lot that I really want to get to and cover before then. But that's going to be an interesting topic. I want and I'm going to try to do an episode on that. On uh, what were they right and and attacking that? What is what is the blood of Christ? What's an accurate view of that and that kind of thing there? Uh, so if you have something that you'd say, hey, maybe you haven't thought about covering this, just reach out, send me a message, ask me about it. Love to hear about that. Um, as always, uh, try to rate the rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave me a review, um, like it, share it on Facebook, on social media. You can find it on uh, Facebook and Twitter. I stopped really doing Instagram. I don't understand Instagram that much. Not a big fan of Instagram. Uh, it's still there, but I don't really do anything with it. Uh, so sorry about that, you Instagram followers. <laughs> um, I apologize, uh, but. Uh, Guys, that's all for today. Until next time, to God, not the pastor, be the glory.